Hi, this is Alina and Megan, and you're listening to Move Your Brain, Move Your Body podcast, where we dive into all things health, wellness, and fitness. We are two certified athletic trainers, personal trainers, and nutrition coaches who met and graduated together from the University of Arkansas. And we want to do this podcast to spread our joy about treating our bodies well through nutrition, exercise, and knowledge. Today on the podcast, we welcome guests Tim Reynolds and Brian Guzki. Tim Reynolds is a clinical assistant professor of anatomy and physiology at Ithaca College and a part-time physical therapist practicing at Cayuga Medical Center in Ithaca, New York, where he predominantly treats patients with spine or lower extremity impairments. Tim earned his doctor of physical therapy degree from Ithaca College in 2014 and completed both his orthopedic residency and spine fellowship through Cayuga Medical Center and currently helps mentor and teach in both of these programs as well. We also welcome Brian Guskey. He is an outpatient orthopedic physical therapist practicing in Rochester, New York, working primarily with patients with spine-related issues and persistent pain. Brian earned his Doctor of Physical Therapy degree from Ithaca College in 2014, completed an orthopedic residency program through Cayuga Medical Center in 2015, and received his orthopedic clinical specialist certification and earned a Master of Business Administration degree from Simon Business School at the University of Rochester in 2021. And you guys have maybe seen on our stories, but Brian and Tim are the authors of the book, Movers and Mentors, which is an absolutely incredible resource for all movement specialists, honestly, but especially those who are just entering the field. So we are really excited to have Tim and Brian on. Welcome, Tim and Brian. All right. So today on the podcast, we welcome Tim Reynolds and Brian Guskey. Welcome. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us, guys. How are you guys doing? So... Before I go on, these two are the authors of the new book, Movers and Mentors, that Alina and I have both been devouring super quickly. And several of my classmates have purchased it as well, by the way. So it's pretty cool to see how much it's growing. But yeah, tell us a little bit about yourselves, please. Sure. Yeah. So I'm Brian. I'm a physical therapist in Rochester, New York. I've been practicing for about seven years now. I work in outpatient orthopedics, and I currently direct the orthopedic residency program here at the uh, University of Rochester Medical Center. Awesome. Amazing. And my name is Tim. I'm a full-time professor at Ithaca College. I teach anatomy physiology. I'm a part-time clinician in Ithaca, New York, and I uh, also teach in the residency program that we offer at Cayuga Medical Center. Awesome. It's it's so exciting because I went to Cortland, so about 20 minutes away. Yes. Well, Elena, so. this is a really a big weekend for us <laughs> because it is the Cortica Jug. So, oh, you guys um, might lose, right? Okay. So, yeah. So, unfortunately, dragons aren't <laughs> real this weekend. So, we'll see, yeah, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> so, what inspired you guys to do this? Start this book. Yeah. So, back in 2015, Tim and I were going through uh, orthopedic residency together at Hugo Medical Center. And we started noticing a lot of kind of reoccurring names and some of the research and blogs and just information that we were getting at that time. And, you know, it was the Tim Flynn's, the Julie Fritz, the John Childs, the Adrian Lau, you know, Louis Pantadora, who I know you guys know. <laughs> so we started seeing a lot of these names and we pretty soon after that both found ourselves in educational and, and mentorship roles. And we were getting a lot of questions with regards to kind of personal and professional guidance and next steps, you know, failures, career choices, those types of questions. And Tim and I reflected back on those names and kind of the themes that that we saw in the research and again, other information that we were consuming. And we said, well, it wouldn't be interesting if we asked all of those researchers, you know, business leaders, innovators that we were following throughout our residency program, ask them similar questions. 
So that kind of was the, the genesis of the idea. And so at that point, we kind of put together a list of names, our, our dream team, if you will, of people that we would want to interview. We came up with a list of questions. And from there, that was two and a half years ago, almost three years ago now, we sent out our first batch of cold call emails. And that's where uh, Movers and Mentors was born. So awesome. It could not have come at a better time for me personally. I know that's kind of selfish, but I am like almost done with my first year in a two-year program. And so I'm like trying to crawl to the finish line before I go to clinical. So it's pretty cool to also see like several of my professors in this book, but it has been so it's comforting because I feel like in physical therapy, it's, it may be changing, but I feel like there isn't a ton of like automatic mentorship that there is, you know, in like medicine, like as an MD or anyone who, you know, graduates as a doctor of a different type. So I think it's really cool. And this book, I mean, is pushing us in the right direction, I think. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Megan. When we think about Brian and my sort of aspirations to start this book is really, really selfish to be completely honest, because we wanted to get the answers to the questions that we had. And we thought it'd be really cool to be able to ask some of the movers and shakers within the industry, some of our own personal questions. And like you were sort of highlighting too, we have the opportunity for mentorship through our clinical instructors through PT school. And that's an eight to 12 week period of time, sometimes less, sometimes more, depending on which program you're in. And then there's indirect mentorship through some of the faculty members that you have. But at the same time, it's hard to be able to isolate them in their time when they're trying to take care of all these other students within the program. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I think is really cool about Movers and Mentors is you can treat this like a novel and you can start in the beginning and sort of read through it and finish it. Or you can use it like an encyclopedia and mm-hmm. sort of flip through and highlight or pull bits and pieces of failures from so-and-so and another uh, mover and shaker, and then try to create your sort of, or sort of like Frankenstein mentor, if you will, <laughs> in which you're trying to piece together all the best components that speak to you. So, Tim and I realized pretty quickly that nobody would read a, a personal and professional guidance book if we wrote 350 pages. So we thought <laughs> that's true. Know, leader, we thought le- asking leaders and innovators and influencers in our profession was probably a better route to kind of get this project done. So Tim and I talk about it a little bit. You know, you can go and you can look up, you know, David Butler's philosophy on educating patients on pain. You can go and look at, you know, Brian Heiderscheidt's kind of return to run program. You can find interviews where he's talked about that a ton and, you know, the list goes on, but it's really tough to find information that we put in this book, you know, out there and kind of on the web or even through podcasts. So we're hoping that Movers and Mentors adds kind of a, a different kind of value to, to readers and students and young professionals. Yeah. And another thing that I really love about it is that, I mean, the people that have been movers and shakers in this profession and just movement in general we have like the McKenzie method and then we have PRI and we have all these different things that actually, from what I have observed as a non-clinician yet, they kind of butt heads. Like they seem to think that their method of doing things is the best, but having them all of the founders who are like truly the geniuses that have come up with these methods just sort of talk about, you know, how they came to be where they are. It just helps open your mind to like how how different everybody is, but how much we can kind of combine all these different methods and all these different philosophies from people who are like the best of the best. So I think that's really cool. One of our guests, Erson Religioso, made a statement in which he said, everything works, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? Uh, And so it's one of those things that, that as 
we continue to sort of span throughout our profession, I think Brian can speak to this also, you start out as a young graduate or a new clinician, and your mindset so focused on the textbook answers for X, Y, and Z, and this is how it has to happen. And if it deviates away from any sort of non-textbook-based answer, it's probably not going to work. And then you figure out that, well, if you do a couple press-ups, maybe their back pain will get better. Maybe if you have them go on a walking program, they can get better. And if you manipulate their back, they'll get better. And if you combine elements of all of those, maybe they get better a little bit faster. Mm -hmm. And so everything works. And I think it's one of those things that understanding that, yes, there's over 75 people within the pages of this book, and they are all successful in one way, shape, or form. And they all had different schooling, different mentors, different belief systems, different perceptions on what physical therapy actually is. And you do not necessarily need to follow one specific belief system. Combining multiple different ones at the same time will still lead to a successful clinical career. Yeah. It's really uplifting as a student who is like currently like just trying to, you know, I'm trying to pass the NPTE first. So I have to like learn all the textbook stuff and all the stuff that's, you know, evidence-based, which obviously that's the best. That's one tier of evidence-based medicine is like research, right? But another part of it is obviously experience, which I don't have yet. So it's just cool to be able to kind of be honestly have my eyes open to a lot of these people because I know who many of them are, but not all of them. So yeah, it's really been cool. I want to talk a little bit about the way you guys wrote this book because I read a lot and I've read a lot of books that are science-based, evidence-based, tons of different books. But the way your book is set up is actually very different than any other book I've read. And we kind of talked a little bit about it. Like you're kind of questioning interviewing people, asking them more details about things they've learned. So maybe just go a little deeper into why you did it that way and what you guys yourselves got out of because you had to, I'm sure, have interviews for them. So what did you get out of it? Yeah. So uh, back in 2015, when we came up with the idea, Tim and I were also both reading a book, sharing a book at that point, Tools of Titans by Timothy Ferris. I don't know if you guys have yeah. read any I've of Tim Ferris's work or heard of him. He has a really popular podcast as well, Yeah, where he asks similar style questions. Mm -hmm. And so we were both reading that book and you know he's interviewing people like Arnold Schwarzenegger, Tony Robbins, Oprah Winfrey, you know, he, just on a kind of another level. And we really liked the style of that book because we really gleaned a lot out of it. Um, there's a lot of valuable information. You kind of learn these tactics of whatever you want to call it, successful people, high performers. And that also kind of led down the, the track of us developing this book or helped us kind of push it in this direction and why we wanted to set it up like that. Obviously, we could have, you know, just dictated, you know, a general hour-long interview and kind of free form, but we thought having the structure of the questions so that you could compare individual responses was valuable. But also, as you were kind of saying, Megan, what are the themes that are coming out of that, right? So, yeah, you might have a McKenzie therapist, a PRI therapist, a manual therapist, and a pain expert, you know all answering the same type of kind of personal or professional question. And what are the common themes or what are their differences and what aligns more with your values and kind of how you think and operate. So that's how we wanted to set it up. And we wanted each guest to have their own individual chapter because we thought each person should, and they gave us the time. The book would not have come together without their time and their input. So yeah, I guess that if that kind of answers your questions, I'm yeah, not sure if Tim has a, sure. has a follow up on that. Well, their passion really shines through. And I don't know if I mentioned this to you guys, but so I'm assistant class leader for my class. And every week I 
write like a motivational Monday post. And I've just been highlighting, highlighting, highlighting because there's so many valuable, just little tidbits of knowledge and just encouragement in this book. But I wanted to ask you guys, do you have a favorite response or quote, both of you, either of you? I think you asked, uh, Elena, what what was our sort of opportunity to take away from this? Mm. This has been one of the most exciting experiences I've had so far. I mean, to be able to sit down with Peter O'Sullivan for an hour and 30 minutes and talk about physical therapy stuff was amazing. Or Brian Mulligan, like Brian Mulligan is one of the grandfathers of PT. And to be able to just have the opportunity to say, no, I've had a conversation with him was super cool. And when I think back through all the interviews, I think there's answers that are obviously really strong. And I think those come out within the pages of the book. I think Michael Shacklock was an awesome interviewer. I really appreciated that conversation I had. One of the um, questions that I talk about frequently is Jeff Moore. So Jeff Moore had a really awesome response, I thought, in regards to his perceptions of failure. And he talks about it in terms of the concept of a speed wobble. And so if you've ever ridden a bike down a hill before, and if you start going really, really fast, right? So you're on the brink of failure or greatness. So you're going to go head over handlebars, or you're going to come out and be like, I just crushed that. And so he talked about that in terms of elements of his life. And he related it to like his training methods too. So Megan, I know you're really active in the gym and you, you share a lot of that with your followers, which I think is great. But Jeff talked about if I never pushed myself to failure on like push jerks, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't know what my boundary point would be. And so he talked about that idea of trying to live on that edge of the speed wobble. And I really, really took that to heart and that really resonated with me, which I appreciated. It's awesome. Yeah. One that stood out to me was our interview with Mark Milligan, who now is the director of clinical operations or physical therapy for Vori Health, which is a digital health startup, but he's done a lot in in telehealth space. And his quote that we pulled out from our discussion with him was the number one place uh, we must invest time in is ourselves. If you don't take care of yourself, you can't be an effective clinician or at least not for long. And that resonated with me because I think that is really important, especially maybe it's just the context now, you know, going through COVID and, you know, we're all burdened. We all have been burdened and stressed in different ways because of the pandemic. But I really think that's true. I think it, you do have to learn as you kind of grow in your practice, you do learn more about yourself and things that you value and different ways to make yourself a, a better person and ultimately a better clinician. And you do have to take care of yourself mentally, physically, emotionally, if you want to be an effective clinician and take care of other people. So that was one thing that resonated with me and I kind of took to heart. And sometimes, you know, when you're depending on the type of practice, if you're in a, a fast paced, you know, higher volume outpatient clinic, you know, you can feel like you're giving all of yourself to your patients. And, you know, at the end of the day, you just <laughs> want to kind of take a break and, and catch your breath and think about yourself. And oftentimes, you know, that kind of goes by the wayside if you just want to plop on the couch and watch Netflix and then <laughs> recover, but really kind of, you know, thinking about your needs and thinking about your values and ways to kind of achieve your goals and objectives. I think ultimately it comes back to, to taking care of yourself. So if you can take care of yourself, you can take care of people better. Yeah. I think that goes for everything like yeah. relationships, children. Yeah, I mean, sure. I don't have children, but I have a relationship and I feel like taking care of myself makes me better at being a girlfriend. So yeah, yeah that's awesome. And I feel like that is so important for PTs because I just see it all the time. Like 
the burnout, especially during COVID, like for anyone in healthcare, it's been, it's just like so easy to get like disheartened, you know? So. No, I think that's, I mean, that's huge. And I think obviously the impact that it had from an academia standpoint, right? How labs have had to change, right? How being in your pod, you can't, you have to do all these techniques with masks on. And so from an academia standpoint, I see how challenging that's been for the students that I teach. I remember at the start of the pandemic, losing the compassion to treat because part of the perception was, and how, if this sounds wrong, but how dare you come in with just your knee pain that's been bothering you for six months, but it's like a two out of 10. We have no idea what's going on right now. Like potentially people could be dying because of this situation. So it's one of those things that I think that strained the relationship that a lot of us had with physical therapy and with healthcare in general, but having the opportunity to read some of those moments of burnout and how people were able to overcome those within the book is sort of a breath of fresh air. So so I have to ask, how long have you been a full-time professor and what prompted you to, I don't want to say make the switch because you still are working in the clinic, but yeah. add that on, I guess. No, I think I did a bunch of TAing when I was in grad school and undergrad. So I had this passion for either sharing education or listening to myself talk and I think a bit of both. And so I have an audience for an hour and 15 minutes and they have to laugh at my dad jokes and stuff, which is enjoyable. But I started full-time clinician or full-time academia two years ago, I believe. I've been part-time. And so I was doing full-time academia and full-time clinical work for about a year, which was a little bit burning the fire on both ends. And from a quality of life standpoint, one of those had to drop. But what I appreciate is the opportunity for that mentorship and to be able to sort of not only just catch fish myself, but teach a man to fish kind of concept. And so if I can influence the lives of my students, I know that they're going to go forth and influence, influence the lives of many other individuals. And so that's my role that I see. I still, I'm still in the clinic twice a week, but at a significantly less level. Yeah. And then Brian, how long have you been? You said that you are director of the residency program. I don't remember what you said. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been with the University of Rochester Medical Center for since 2016. And I've been the director of the residency program since end of 2017, I believe. So cool. yeah, I've, um, I, I really was drawn to having coming, come out of a residency program. I felt like I had a lot to offer because I went through a different program. So I felt like I could pull things that I thought were valuable or well done in the program that I went through with Tim and bring mm-hmm. those to the current program at U of R. So I was really drawn to, to that role from a mentorship side and education side. So it's been, a, it's been a lot of fun. Awesome. So do you think, do either of you think that in physical therapy residencies and or fellowships are going to become more of the norm soon in the future? Yeah, I think so. They're definitely growing. I mean, even compared to when I stepped into my role, we've added a lot of all residency programs in all specialty areas, but you know, even especially orthopedics. So I think we're kind of moving towards that route. But you know, it's it's difficult to say. It's such a kind of moving and shifting landscape now. You know, PT is you have a lot more PTs going and doing cash-based stuff, you know, kind of new ventures on that side. You have telehealth and digital health kind of unfolding. We're kind of seeing that right before our eyes and living through that, which is interesting. So (laughs) I think the next five to 10 years will be, there'll be a lot of changes and I'm hoping most of them for the better, but in terms of, you know, kind of mandatory residency or fellowship education, seems like that's the track we're heading down, but it's tough to say for sure. Yeah, I think that's a difficult thing to navigate on a large scale. So I did residency and I did a postdoc fellowship in spine. 
And so I think when you look at the quantity of graduates that are going through programs, I forget if it's 11 or 12,000 physical therapy students per year are graduating out of a, out of a program, you would need residency and fellowship spots for all those individuals. So I think there potentially would be specialization tracks that might be something that we start focusing towards. But I think mandating that a residency and fellowship are part of your physical therapy, I guess, curriculum would be, I think, challenging. That being said, when you look at the letters after these people's names within the book, right? Some of them have a little bit more alphabet soup than others, like Miss McKeown yeah. and Z, but besides that, they got everybody else, right? So <laughs> I think it's one of those things that it's interesting to hear the perceptions of education, like what are valuable courses to be taking? That's one of the questions that we ask, like what is your favorite course that you've taken? And a lot of them do talk about the benefit of some sort of a residency or some sort of mentorship, guided mentorship after having the opportunity to go through their undergraduate career. Me personally, going to residency was the best clinical decision I made, just based on the fact that I remember John Winslow, who's one of my mentors, and Mike Costello, who's my mentor in the book that we highlighted, mentioned it'll give you five years of clinical experience in a year. And when he said that, I was like, I think that that's something that I want to sign up for. And I do not regret that choice at all. I'd say the the overwhelming majority of our guests would agree with what kind of Tim and I just said that, you know, that seems to be the direction that we're heading and that seems to be the right track. But then you have, you know, clinicians and, you know, really successful leaders in our profession, like Mike Reinold and Kelly Starrett. Mm-hmm. Mike Reinold says, you know, create your own residency program, you know, figure out what interests you figure out your own CME, have an employer that will support you on this specialty track. And then Kelly Starrett basically says, come out of school and become, I think the quote is become a savage generalist, if I'm not mistaken, (laughs) which means just like learn everything, try to be, you know, tough to say, be great at everything, but be good at everything. And then from there, you know, discover your your passion and your track. So yeah, yeah, I think again, to fall back on why this book seems to be um, is interesting and has been a lot of fun to work on is because you get these different perspectives. Yeah. Well, and I was going to say, Gray Cook, if I remember correctly, said almost the exact opposite of that. He was like, get really good at one thing. Yeah. Don't try to do everything. And so mm-hmm. I'm like sitting over here because I, I want to <laughs> people that like tries to do everything for everyone else, but also myself. So yeah. I don't know. It's very, it's encouraging to just have these people on paper, just kind of calming me down just a little bit. So yeah, thank you, yeah. thank you both. Totally. And they're successful. They've done different things. They've taken different tracks. They've had plenty of failures, as you can see in the book. And, you know, they they still made it, I guess, depending on your definition of what that is. That no. one. So, yeah. Sorry, go. No, no, no. You go for it. Well, I was just going to say, sort of continuing off that concept from a reassuring standpoint, Megan, the NPT just came out with the results for this most recent October test, right? And so obviously you go to PT school for two years with the intention of I'm going to pass the boards, two or three years, pass the boards, find a job, pay off my student loans eventually, right? You have this sort of mindset that you go through. And the majority of the individuals that are in the profession are relatively type A personalities, right? We like to do things well, and we like to succeed, and we perceive getting a 92 or an 89 on an exam, a significant failure, and then we compare it to everybody else in the class, and then we become upset about it, and then we study even more, right? So this is one of these common themes that we see, not for everybody, but for the majority of people that go through PT school. And I think one of the benefits, and probably one of the things I'm really thankful that we have the opportunity to ask some of these individuals, was that concept of failure. And knowing that someone like Louis Puentadora 
who is very successful. Dr. P. Dr. P. Dr. P failed his last clinical rotation in orthopedics. I was overwhelmed with like, holy cow, here's somebody that is published and successful in teaching and doing all these things. And specifically in the manual therapy orthopedic realm. And I couldn't fathom what it would feel like being on my last clinical rotation, being so close to sitting and getting this failure response that you have to now navigate and put your life on hold while all your classmates go ahead and move forward with their quote unquote plan. And the concept that was it Julie Weeb took three trials to get into PT school, right? I think a lot of us are like, well, I got, I got into my number one choice or my second choice. But when you have to try to apply three separate times and you struck out those times, I hope that there is someone reading the book that looks at this at a state of like, oh my gosh, how I'm going to navigate my next six months, six weeks, next year, because I had this epic failure and gets some level of reassurance that it's okay to fail. Failure can be normalized. Perception of failure can change, but as long as you're learning from that opportunity, it allows for you to grow as an individual. Yeah, it is so valuable to learn how to recover. Like, and it says a lot about a person. Like, if I failed my last clinical, God forbid. I mean, and then having to take, I mean, I just, yeah, it's definitely inspiring and relieving to know that other people have their own struggles as well. Cause I've had many of my own just over the last, you know, 10 months in PT school. So, well, so I'm not a PT and we have a lot of other listeners, athletic trainers, but your book, it doesn't matter if you're a PT. Anybody can read it because life is about ups and downs. And I think it's kind of interesting. I was going to ask what you guys took away from like maybe somebody in the book that they said something that, I don't know, really, you were you already, Tim already mentioned something that like really resonated with you, but maybe something like you were mentioning before about how somebody goes in, you know, trying to become a generalist and some people come in trying to be a specialist. So what have you taken that you've kind of used? So I think it's from the concept of actual clinical skill sets. And I think that's one of the, the benefits of the book is that you do not need to be a PT. Right. You do not need to be a practicing clinician. We have professionals in the business world. <laughs> there's academics, there's researchers, there's clinicians in the trenches, right? There's mm-hmm. a variety of individuals that we are able to pull from. I think the concept of it, someone trying to give you advice, you have these, they should be given the time of day to give their advice. And whether or not you want to resonate with that advice is something that I guess that's your choice. One one quote or one thought came from Shante Cofield, mm. and it's the quote that we have on her, the start of her chapter, which actually came mm. from one of her friends, and she mentioned it during the interview that I had with her, and it was diversify your joy portfolio. And I thought that her explanation and how she's lived her life in order to try to facilitate that was really interesting and how like, well, the beach makes me really happy, so I'm going to move to California, right? And... I really enjoy doing X, Y, and Z. So I'm going to try to fill all of my day with as much of that joy, the sort of micro joys versus when you think about a lot of our society, especially in the United States where it's like, well, I get my two weeks of vacation a year. So I'm going to work my nine to five or longer. And I'm going to grind the entire week with the hope that the weekend is nice, or I'm just going to wait for the summer where I have this two week off vacation. And so trying to figure out what brings me happiness and how do I try to implement more of that in my day 
and not necessarily banking on this one thing, but trying to diversify it has right. been one of those things that I think was really cool to take away from. Yeah. So I kind of talked before about Mark Milligan's quote, so, and that was more from a personal side. So I guess I'll jump to a professional side. And there are two things in the book that stood out to me, many things that stood out, but two of which were John Child's quote we pulled. He was talking about the kind of history of the profession and you know how he, he kind of got to where he is with evidence in motion and his own personal mentors. And his quote was, we really do stand on the shoulders of giants, meaning that there's so much that we do in our profession and how we kind of treat and and act professionally on a day-to-day that we, I don't want to say take for granted, but just understanding our history and, and knowing where we came from and knowing kind of our past and the past of the profession or any profession really, whether that's, you know, athletic training, chiropractic, massage, what have you, medicine in in general, knowing the past will help us kind of in the future. And we wouldn't be able to do what we do today and operate the way we do without those that came before us. And one, kind of the sacrifices that they made, the efforts, the push towards whatever profession you're speaking of, the push towards independence and practicing autonomously. So I thought that was really powerful. The other thing was, I know Tim mentioned Jeff Moore, so I'll just kind of piggyback off of that. Jeff Moore talks about the value of having a mentor, and many of our guests talk about that, but he talked about it in a way that, you know, find that person that's doing the thing that you want to do and figure out a way to almost kind of deliver value to them. So ask how you can help them get involved with, you know, kind of their scope, their side of things, because that will, Ultimately, that will kind of show you the the way that you need to go in order to achieve the goals that you want to achieve. So find that person that's doing the things that you want to do or seems to be doing the things that you want to do and find ways to kind of add value to to their life. That can be maybe if it's a coworker or, you know, kind of a leader in your clinic or hospital setting or what have you, pulling things off of their plate and kind of helping them out. That can be taking on projects that can be, you know, helping out in a number of ways. So I think those two things professionally spoke to me. Awesome. I was just looking at the book because there was a couple of questions that you guys asked a bunch of people. That I'm just curious about what your responses would be. So am I allowed to do that? Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. Go for it. Okay. So it was two back-to-back questions. So basically, what advice would you give to a smart, driven college student or young professional entering, quote, the real world? I can go first. And my advice would be, and I said this on another conversation that we were having. So I apologize if anybody's hearing this twice, but don't, (laughs) don't underestimate the power of momentum. Because I think once you start achieving little tasks or goals with, you know, whether or not you have the bigger picture in mind uh, or not, I think once you start achieving things, it becomes this domino effect where you know, bigger and bigger tasks seem easier and easier because you've already completed those little tasks. And so if your goal is to be an expert clinician, don't underestimate the power of, you know, doing a residency program or finding a quality mentor, because that will lead to many other opportunities and bigger and and cooler things to come around. So yeah, don't don't underestimate the power of momentum. And sort of piggybacking off what Brian said, I think if I had to give advice to some of my students, and I I do tend to do this every semester, what's your why or find your why lecture. And I think that that is one of the most thought-provoking and or powerful conversations that I have throughout the academic year. And I try to save it towards the end of the semester when people are starting to 
run out of caring. And I think it's one of those things that we enter this profession, which is a relatively selfless profession. We are not going to going to healthcare, right? In general, if you want to help other people, odds are it's probably not driven from a financial standpoint. <laughs> Your student loans will be forever paid off every month, right? And so when you think about why am I here? Why am I studying? Why am I losing sleep? If you continuously go back to your why, and whether that be an end goal in mind or a person or someone that you're doing this for, I think that's one of the things that you can draw upon and really dig into when you are losing that motivation or feeling sort of helpless or hopeless at points in time. And so find your why, stay true to your values and try to navigate those values towards your why would be mine. And I think finding your why is actually really hard, much easier said than done. It takes sure. maybe even years. I think it just depends on the human. It depends on how they learn, who they are. And I think in that time as you're learning yourself, because most of the time people don't really figure out what they want to do, what is their inner joy until later on. But as you're going through this journey of life and you're developing and you're trying to figure out what you want to do, there's so much advice you get that maybe doesn't help. So what advice have you gotten in your time that you ignore? <laughs> Oof. You know, as I ponder that <laughs> one, I'm going to actually rebuttal and not to be too tangential, but <laughs> we're talking about why. And you guys, are you both precision? Nutri- Did I see that you yeah. both are precision nutrition? I forget I have that. <laughs> yeah. I use um, mine. I don't. <laughs> John, John Berardi, uh, yeah. the founder of one of the co-founders of Precision Nutrition, he just came out with a new book. I believe it's called, I have it upstairs, Change Makers, and talks about kind of aligning your purpose, your passion, and ultimately your why. And he talks about, you know, like you said, Elena, sometimes it takes many years to kind of figure out and can be difficult to navigate. But he goes through an exercise in the beginning of the book of like discovering what your superpowers are. What are the things that come really easy to you that may be hard to other people what are the things that you really enjoy doing that you're really good at that to you seem like so novel and are not novel and just, you know, kind of like living your day-to-day life, but to others you do really, really well. And you need to ask people for those. It's tough to kind of come up with them on your own, but actually going through an interview process where you're interviewing, you know, family, friends, coworkers, what have you about what your own superpowers are. And sometimes that can help you kind of figure out your why and ultimately your passion and your purpose. So uh, I just wanted to say that before I forgot it, but hopefully I bought him enough time to talk about something. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate, appreciate the, uh, the layup there, Brian. I think that's one of those things, and you can sort of be cliche, and I think when everybody tries to give you advice, it's at least worth listening to and then sort of disseminating whether or not that is meaningful or valuable to you. If someone's taking the time to have a conversation with you, I think that's something that you have to try to truly appreciate. When I think back sort of through my life and my failures and whatnot, I think the advice that I would tell someone to ignore would be trying to live up to some sort of expectation that's not necessarily true to yourself. I think there's a lot of different elements and that sort of goes back to the failure. And I think there's this perception of this pedestal that we try to put people on and try to hold them to this pedestal. So the advice of like, this is what you're supposed to be or strive for can become kind of challenging from a psychosocial standpoint. I think normalizing that it's okay to not be okay (laughs) is something that we need to allow people to do. I started seeing a therapist this summer. It was one of the best things I've ever done. And I think I talk about frequently in therapy, this concept of like the cover of a book 
and trying to live up to the front cover of the book and not necessarily know what's going on in the pages inside. But there's a lot of things that we do in our life that are front cover book worthy. Right. And so I think this perception of, well, this is what it means to be a physical therapist, or this is what it means to be a professional in this field. And you're holding yourself to those values. Yes, there is elements of truth to that, but I think that there's also a lot of stress and pressure that we can put ourselves to by trying to uphold those standards. So I think it comes back down to not necessarily finding your why, but be true to yourself and really listen to what you need and what you want and not necessarily what others perceive that you're supposed to be. Social media is like the epitome of that. And this last year, like COVID has been really great for like me professionally and personally, just because of, you know, Instagram has grown a lot, but really that is so true. Like it's just so easy to put out the cover of the book because it is, you filter what you want people to see and it's exhausting to share your whole life. So of course, why would you share it all? You got to just share the highlights or whatever, but that's not the Sports yeah. that are top 10. I'm going to show you everything yeah. that's super, super successful. I'm going to take out the blue. <laughs> that's how it works. That's yeah. how it works. Yeah. That's such great advice. I appreciate that a lot, actually, because I, I kind of needed that today. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> that was really good, Tim. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Brian. That's going to be a tough one to live up to. <laughs> you set him up, so your fault. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, boy. I did set him up. <laughs> yeah. You knocked that out of the park. I think mine would be challenge some of the, I guess, kind of preconceived beliefs as to what we can do and ways that we can help people. And then I guess this is again, going more professionally. I think there's a lot of variety and different opportunities with the way that we can actually help society, help people deliver value. And a lot of the decisions that I've made up until this point, I made because I thought that was the only track. And that was the only way I was going to be successful is if you know, I work for a outpatient orthopedic facility and, you know, I put in a lot of hours seeing patients and hopefully down the road, I'll be happy doing this, I guess. And, you know, ultimately I've gotten to a point where I don't think that continuing down that path would be the the wisest decision for me. So ultimately it kind of comes back to, I think there's a lot of different ways that we can help people and it doesn't necessarily have to be a you know, a a nine to five job in the clinic. I I think you do need to get exposure to a lot of different things before you can offer more value and be more helpful. You need to have experience. I mean, there's no way around it. The only way to have experience is to get experience, right? Which is kind of frustrating to some extent, because it's like that job that you want it, that you really want. And it's like, oh, we're looking for five years experience. And it's like, well, how am I supposed to get five years experience if you don't give me a shot, right? So it, it is tough. And I, I get that. But I think there's something to be said. I think who is it? Tim Mark Laslett talks about, you know, the value of seeing a lot of patients early on in your clinical practice to understand pattern recognition and to figure out how to work with different people different ways. And I think there's a ton of value in that. And I, I really couldn't agree more. But also, I, I think it's okay to kind of challenge preconceived, you know, kind of beliefs or kind of thought structures as to, you know, if you want to do this, then there's only one way to do it. That would be my kind of long-winded response to that question. Yeah. And sort of continuing that, Brian, I mean, you talked about that idea of it requiring experience to gain experience. And I think that's one of the things that as a new graduate, you come out of physical therapy school and there's a lot of imposter syndrome. And I yeah. think during physical therapy school and any sort of professional school in general, I mean, like we said, this is not necessarily only targeted for physical therapists. I think a lot of people could benefit from this book, but that concept of imposter syndrome is something that you do not necessarily get rid of. 
I had to lecture on renal physiology and like the functions of the kidneys today. I am only an hour smarter than some of these kids, right? Like, I think that's one of those things that understanding that it is okay to not know things and that you are just walking in the shoes of those movers and shakers that came before you. Because at some point in time, we were all novices and we only knew what we knew. And that is an adorable dog. Sorry. He likes likes to make appearances during class. Oh my gosh. I am so jealous right now. But (laughs) continuing to my thought, Mike Reinald made a really good statement in his closing thoughts in terms of what it takes to become an expert. Mm -hmm. Because I think we we graduate with whatever degree we have and we want to strive for expertise. And there are specific steps that, that Mike mentions in terms of how you become an expert, but you have to go through them in that order in order to achieve it. So the idea of you have to acquire knowledge, then you have to develop skill, then you have to gain clinical experience, and then you have judgment because we cannot necessarily make judgment calls until you've actually developed the skill set in order to have the opportunity to determine when to utilize some of these different skills or making these clinical reasonings. And so I think that's okay when you're thinking about, well, I just graduated or I'm in my first clinical affiliation. This is the best that I can give you, right? So I'm giving you 110% of what I have right now. And it's okay that might not necessarily be expertise, but it's what I know and what I own. And so I think understanding, and you've talked about from a social media standpoint, stay in your lane, own what you own. Don't necessarily try to navigate outside of those boundaries because you may not be an expert in those yet. And it's okay not to be an expert in those because you just haven't had enough reps yet. And that that will come with time. I think that's really big too, because in the clinic, like you can take a book out and you can talk to your patients and be like, hey, I don't know this right now, but I'm going to learn more. And I think from what I've seen, people really respect that. So Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot to say about you can't know everything, you're human. And so sometimes you have to just look it up and keep learning. And that's just what's going to make you grow. So yeah. And I think being a PT, only part of it is like having the knowledge of like movement and the body and injuries and pain. It's partially just being able to connect with people and like make them feel heard and seen. So when you think about what a successful clinician truly is, we are providing a service. And I think in the service industry, we have to not only have knowledge and skill, right? We have to be safe. We have to be able to screen. But at the end of the day, if you do not have a connection with that patient, then you are by far missing the boat. And so I think, and you'll hear that resonate throughout the pages. If I could go back and probably Brian would agree, PT school is different back in the early, like, 2000s, late 2000s, where we didn't necessarily put so much of an appreciation to the psychosocial components to healthcare, more of a biomedical model or biomechanical model. And understanding the soft skills of being able to communicate regards to pain and appropriate language, being able to truly actively listen to a patient and the impact that that has. Most of my treatment sessions, I mean, we might not even leave the, we might even leave the room, we might not even move but if I can just sort of talk to the patient and sort of listen to their fears or talk through some of their concerns, that's going to be the most valuable utilization of my time. And they're going to walk away with that and be able to actually utilize that in their day-to-day versus watching them do 10 bridges or leg raises mm-hmm. or something like that. So yeah. you might have FMS over here and McKenzie over here and you know manual therapy down here. 
there, but really the fabric and the glue of all of that is communication mm-hmm. when you really boil it down. So if you're going to you know, allocate time into getting really good at something, and I think Peter Sullivan says this in the book, you know, allocate that time towards communication and understanding how to talk with patients and, and deliver a message and also you know, receive feedback. So I think that was a really good point that you made. Yeah. So we had a couple more questions for you guys. One question that we ask everyone on our podcast is, what do you guys do every day or at least most days to move your brain, move your body or both? And it doesn't have to be every day, but some days. I like it. Great question. So I'll go, I'll go first. If that's all right, Tim. Mm-hmm. Go for it. I'm curious to see what you got. Oh, okay. So that I started, you know, these three things I must do every day. And if I don't do them, it's not necessarily a fail of a day, but you know, it's not as good of a day as it could have been. So I think I started this in college at some point. It's say please and thank you more than anyone else I come in contact with in that day. Sweat every day and learn something new. If I can do those three things, it ends up being a pretty good day. So that's awesome. Yeah. Those are my three things. So I like to work out in the morning. That's usually my go-to. I try to take in some new piece of information each day, hopefully of value and not nonsense, which sometimes it is. And, uh, you know, try to be, try to be polite. That's awesome. We've actually never had anybody say that before. We've had a lot of, we've had like 70 something people on here and nobody's ever said like, please. And thank you. So that was really unique. I like it. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. See, it's just got one. That's a yeah. <laughs> one of the things I started to do probably four years ago was daily journaling. And it has varied over the years. And some of our guests talk about the value of journaling. And when you sort of look at what do successful people do, a lot of meditation, a lot of exercise, a lot of journal reflection time. And I've done some journaling where it's kind of guided. So three things that I'm thankful for three positive affirmations, three things I would make today great, three things that I could have done better. And I've had some really powerful moments when I've done that. But even something as simple as just reflecting upon the day, like today's journal entry, November 9th, I'll talk about teaching renal physiology. I'll talk about having the opportunity to be on this awesome podcast. And more so just the fact that it's going to trigger a thought and trigger a memory. Um, So every day for the past five years, I've journaled. I mean, I might miss a day but I will go back and reflect on that day. And then at the end of the year, I will read through that journal. And it's amazing the small moments in time that you forget. And so in terms of something that I try to do daily, that is my daily movement of myself, which really hopefully moves my brain a little bit. I try to do something outdoors every day. I do a lot of hiking. Most of my hiking when I do it is relatively further and and elevation in terms of mountains and stuff like that. But I try to spend outdoor time. My therapy, my church, my plans being outside. And so if I can sweat while I'm outdoors, that's a win. And then when I can't, I will be going to the gym in the next 20 minutes to <laughs> accomplish that there. So Love it. Love awesome. it. Those are both great answers. Thank yeah. You. And also where you're located is just awesome for <laughs> hiking. And I'm, I think it's gorgeous, right? I'm, so I mean, literally, it's, uh, I'm very jealous. Yeah. So. We do have one last question for you. If people want to reach out, we're going to link your book for sure in this so people can grab it and read it. We have a lot of clinicians on here that are going to be very interested. But if they want to reach out to you and learn more or chat with you, how can they reach you? Yeah, I think what we can do is we'll uh, 
give you our uh, Instagram, our Twitter handles and stuff like that. Obviously, feel free to shoot us a message, shoot us a tweet. We try to be pretty responsive to, to that from a movers and mentors standpoint. I think one of those other sort of closing thought kind of concepts is this is not a finished product project, mm-hmm. right? There's going to be people that read this book that are going to get really frustrated that there's certain individuals that are not within this page, within the pages of this book. And like Brian said, we created this list, but it was also a selfish list where we said, these are individuals who have influenced us. Mm-hmm. And then we started to look at who's spoken at conferences and who do podcasts. And so we created this list, understanding that this is a living project that will continue because in five years, there's going to be a whole new set of movers and mentors. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's an opportunity for us and for our readers. Please reach out to us, send us a message. Who are people that have greatly influenced the profession for you? We would love to add those individuals to our list because this is something that, like I said, has brought Brian and myself a lot of happiness, a lot of joy. It's been such a fun project. And we want to be able to share that story of those mentors in your lives because I think it's an opportunity for all of us to learn from movers and shakers within the field. Awesome. Send us an email at moversandmentors at gmail or uh, hop on our website, moversandmentors.com, and you can link to all of our uh, social media stuff there. And yeah, like Tim said, feel free to drop us a message on Instagram or a tweet. We, we like that sort of stuff. We like seeing people engaged and highlighting our book. That is so cool to see. <laughs> Tim and I never thought in a million years, you know, we'd put something out like this that people would actually uh, highlight. So that feels pretty good on our end. But yeah, because on the Kindle, you can see like who highlights what and what's interesting. And it's kind of cool as I'm reading on my Kindle, I can see what other, I love it with all books. You can see what people have highlighted and that to me is like, oh, that's really interesting. Like other people thought this was, you know, we always want to bond with humans in other ways. So and Kindle highlights can do that for people. <laughs> that's pretty cool. I did not know that was a function. That's yeah, awesome. neither. <laughs> it's I so, like paper, so. No, it's amazing because on the Kindle, you can actually see where other people, you know, what they have found interesting. That's that is awesome. super, that is it's, super cool. Wow. It's funny when you're reading like a fantasy book and you're like, oh, people actually like this. <laughs> you're like, that's well, I like the fantasy. Oh. For real. <laughs> Not as common compared to like other more science books. Those have a lot of highlights. <laughs> and then you can go into the Kindle, like the Goodreads app and actually see your highlights. It's awesome. I use it all the oh time. It's a great function. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So many functions I don't know about. When yeah. I finish your book, I'll send you my highlights on it. So I'm, still reading, I'm still reading it. You'll find it interesting, like what I found the most interesting. I'll send it to you. We will, yeah. Absolutely. Maybe I'll post them in this podcast episode. In two weeks, I'll be done with your book. <laughs> anyway, awesome. thank you so much for coming on our podcast. This was so awesome. Thank yeah, you thank guys. you, guys. We really appreciate your time. Guys, yeah. thank you for having us. This was a lot of fun. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Move Your Brain, Move Your Body podcast. Join in every week as we release new episodes. Subscribe or leave us a rating at Apple Podcasts. If you have questions or topics to cover, please email moveyourbb at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at moveyourbb.